so in the middle of this, what do we call it, uh, hot mess stew, let's say, that we find ourselves in right now, uh, this reality of really this miserable existence, I mean, you can't deny it. No reasonable person would come to any other alternative conclusion. I mean, it's not only a miserable existence, but according to most of the experts, it's a doomed one. And that's what they keep telling us. The power that authority can wield really depends not on the intelligence or the expertise of all of the specialists who come in robes of wisdom to inform and instruct us. It rather depends on the willingness and the naiveness of the public to believe them unquestionably. I mean, they're doctors, they're scientists, they know, right? So we have to listen. And, and beyond that, we have to comply. You know, it's such a curious thing to me to see how much faith society has learned to garner for all of these experts. I mean, it would be ludicrous to even think about questioning such a collective of learned and licensed professionals in their fields. It's this attitude of blind acceptance of these, let's call them uh, glorious few. It, 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 that really just, it shocks me. It leaves me absolutely dumbfounded. Because faith is a metaphysical and, and really a spiritual concept. It's, it's, it's really one that, fa- that finds its foundations um, within religious foundation. So, so then, I mean, let me get this straight. It is anti-intellectual to place my belief in something such as intelligent design, using faith as my basis, and yet it is perfectly sound to use faith to listen and do as all of the experts say that we must do. I mean, after all, it's science, 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 and science. This from the ever-esteemed Nancy Pelosi. I mean, that's an actual quote. Science, 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 and science. Wow. I mean, (laughs) the scope of such a grand intellect is astounding. On on, On almost any subject you can name, science is the answer. Whether it's the climate crisis, the health crisis, whether it's our preeminence in the, in, in the world in terms of technology, science, 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 and science. I mean, I'm really glad that she cleared that up. With such brilliance as this, I mean, yes, science, dude. Come on, Nancy, keep up that strong wit of yours and keep us poor peons in check, okay? Okay, and we're back. It couldn't be more clear. Just the word science holds with it this uh, this sort of gravitas that says, you must bow to me. I mean, is this what is uh, supposed to be expected from an educated public? You can't question and you can't doubt. You can't counter. I mean, it sounds to me more like a cultic religion. But hey, who's keeping track? I mean, when science says... Whatever science says, it's infallible. Maybe some of you got the memo, but, you know, I I haven't seen it. I mean, the media, academia, oh, and hey, even religious institutions have not only gotten the memo, but they're preaching it from the rooftops. Listen to the science. If faith was ever to be a component of living, I mean, it's sadly been appropriated by those who, who who are intent on making sure that it serves the needs of its own appropriators. 
Science as a discipline has, in fact, stood as a critic and even an opponent of faith. It stood to challenge the very existence of God, actually. And yet science has yet to prove the claim that God doesn't exist. Science itself has actually served as a means to further prove that intelligence and therefore intentionality are at the heart of our existence. Life itself is intentional. If not, then to whom or to what are we to give our credence? To what and to whom do we put our faith in? And while we have explored the question of creation in the past, in previous episodes, and the nature of human existence, we now have to go a step further. Because in a world where we're constantly searching for the value and worth of life, we have limited conclusions that we can make. I mean, after all, a majority in the sciences say there are no absolute truths and uh, on issues of ethics, there are, no, there are no moral absolutes. But these same skeptics on matters of faith would use a moral absolutism to enforce their own subjective beliefs about nature on the rest of us. And if we don't listen and act on what they're saying, then we are, by their own measuring, ignorant and dangerous to the rest of society. So, what is the definition of faith? If you go to the more academic definition, it's, it's having complete trust in someone or in something. Okay, I mean, fair enough. But if we're going to be as thorough as our fellow scientists are, then we need to go to the primary source. Faith, according to the biblical book of Hebrews, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I mean, there's, there's way more than just blind trust here, if you really look deeper. Because here we have a definition which asserts actual substance, not abstraction. It connects hope and evidence, the very concepts of the human soul and the human intellect combined in the pursuit of what is not seen. Isn't this at the very basis for authentic study and exploration? Take David Berlinski, a brilliant molecular biologist philosopher and mathematician, okay? And he takes the plunge and taking an honest look at science and faith. In his book, The Devil's Delusion, he observes this. We can make no sense either of daily life or the physical sciences in terms of things that are seen. The past has gone to the place where the past goes. The future has not arrived. We remember the one we count on the other. If this is not faith, what then is it? And he goes on to say, If religious belief places the human heart in the service of an unseen world, the serious sciences have since the great revolution of the 17th century done precisely the same thing. Mathematical physics has the narrative shape of a quest. Physicists have placed their faith in the idea that deep down the universe is coordinated by a great plan, a rational system of organization, a hidden but accessible scheme, one that when finally seen in all its limpid but austere elegance with flood the, uh, will, will flood the soul with gratitude. All we physicists wish to do, Gerard Hooft has remarked, is marvel at nature's beauty and simplicity. We've seen and tasted the beauty, simplicity, and universality of our latest theories. We're now trying to uncover more of that. It is our belief that there is more. Our belief, meaning our faith. He continues, Every scientist since Newton has placed his allegiance in the world beyond the world. 
In his remarkable treatise, The Road to Reality, Roger Penrose quotes a letter from the mathematician Richard Thomas of the Imperial College in London. What is one to make, Penrose asks, of the remarkable, strange, and baffling mathematical results that have appeared in theoretical physics over the past 20 years or so? Thomas's reply is instructive and it is quite moving. He quotes him, to a, math, to a mathematician, he writes, these things cannot be coincidence. They must come from a higher reason. And that reason is the assumption that this big mathematical theory describes nature. So Berlinski surmises, Western science is above all the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Curiously enough, while Western science is saturated in faith, Western scientists remain incapable of seeing that faith itself, whether religious or scientific, is inherently vulnerable to doubt. And look, let's take what has been dubbed the scientific method. We all learned it at some point, probably in high school. Basically, it comprises a particular order to follow, which is you have uh, you observe something, then you form a hypothesis, you, you then um, make that hypothesis uh, uh, testable, you make testable predictions on your hypothesis. Then you engage in experiments that puts that hypothesis to the test. And then you either change, modify your hypothesis based on the results. So the obvious question is, how does one test the veracity of the scientific method? And this is where Berlinski offers this. He asks, what remains of the ideology of the sciences? It is the thesis that the, that the sciences are true. Who would doubt it? And that only the sciences are true. Now, again, by what can science prove itself true and to be the only truth? Again, Berlinski adds this. An ideological system whose proponents are persuaded that access to the truth is in their hands requires an equally general defense against criticism. As one might expect, it lies close at hand. The sciences, many, many scientists argue, require no criticism because the sciences comp comprise a uniquely self-critical institution with questionable theories passing constantly before stern appellate review. Judgment is unrelenting and impartial. Individual scientists make, make, may make mistakes, but like the Communist Party under Lenin, science is, infallib is infallible because its judgments are collective. Critics are unneeded, and since they are unneeded, they are not welcome. A system so conceived always works to the satisfaction of those who have conceived it. I mean, it couldn't be clearer. The biggest issue here is that some of the most fundamental tenets of science are based on hypotheses which are based in theory. If there, if there is possible new discovery on any given hypothesis, the science is far from settled. I mean, let's ask the question, can science be wrong? That's the more obvious question. Not according to many scientists or its proponents, especially on issues that have the potential to affect change, especially change that's political and social. The attitudes that now we see on the on these issues of covid and 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 the vaccines on climate change are all are according according to those in the know more like priests and clerics who demand an obedience not to truth but to their own subjective narratives obey the science obey the church funny how uh, funny how this this isn't anything new the past that we remember shows us that when kings and clergy make such pronouncements, the result 
was a world engulfed in an authoritarianism that sought to compel the everyday citizen by what? By torture, by imprisonment, and a despotism, while claiming to bring progress, brought only darkness. Such a specter is once again looming over the so-called progressive world in which we now live. Alexis de Tocqueville writes this. He says, Despotism often presents itself as the repairer of all the ills suffered, the support of just rights, defender of the oppressed, and founder of order. How many times has the hypothesis on climate change changed over the last 50 plus years? Quite a bit. Science's understanding of climate has evolved since the middle of the 20th century, hasn't it? And there's still debate, not only on what we're, on what we're to expect, but, but on how to deal with it. So who gets to impose on the world population the new order of how to live in order to deal with it? And what about critical race theory? What about queer theory? and colonial theory, and feminist theory, and eco-critical uh, eco theory. Notice that all of today's academics and experts expect all of us to adhere to new policies, changes in education, and the social order, based on one thing alone, theory. This is what is called expert theory. I mean, what is a theory? Simply defined, it's a supposition. And this is what the media diffuses down to us as quote-unquote facts. A supposition is not a fact. It's an assumption. But this is how today's so-called advanced society wishes to operate, on suppositions masquerading as facts. Because a few scientific or academic experts came to a consensus over here on theories that have only been formulated over the last 50 to 70 years. This is postmodernism at its best. Replacing actual hard rock principles that have been at the very heart of how we live and, 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 and how we interact with one another. But these self-evident principles of hard work, strong family life, of discipline and honor personal responsibility, faith, perseverance, and even the sciences uh, of, or, or, or the science of our own biology and our very nature is all under attack by theories, suppositions that are of a subjective nature. But the attitude is instead of talking these things through, rather it's, you must accept my subjective theory. Because I'm an expert. Generally speaking, I think the term utopia isn't really used much anymore, but, but the idea is still quite pervasive. It comes with other labels under these new scientific theories that are supposed to lead us to solutions to a new society that is able to build back better. But isn't this the claim of any politician looking to get into office or of any activist looking to get some attention? Here's a brilliant philosopher, Karl Popper, and he says this. He says, Any social science which does not teach the impossibility of rational social construction is entirely blind to the most important facts of social life and must overlook the 
only social laws of real validity and real importance. Social sciences seeking to provide a background for social engineering cannot, therefore, be true descriptions of social facts. They are impossible in themselves. Now, if you don't know or have ever heard of Steven Pinker, he's a brilliant psychologist, and he states that, quote, something in modernity and its cultural institutions has made us nobler. Really? That's quite the claim. Does technological advancement make the human race nobler? Has social media, the medium by which we're all supposed to be more connected, brought out the noblest parts of ourselves? I think we all know the the answer to those questions. Now, Pinker goes on to say this. Cruelty as entertainment, human sacrifice to indulge superstition, slavery as a labor-saving device, conquest as the mission statement of government, genocide as a means of acquiring real estate, torture and mutilation as routine punishment, the death penalty for misdemeanors, and differences of opinion, assassination as the mechanism of political succession, rape as the spoils of war, pogroms as outlets for frustration, Homicide is the major form of conflict resolution. All were unaccept, uh, unexceptionable features of life for most of human history. But today, they are rare to non-existent in the West, far less common anywhere else than they used to be, concealed when they do occur, and widely condemned when they are brought to light. That's Steven Pinker. Either Pinker is living in some bunker at the center of the earth, or he is, he is as Berlinsky estimates, his, Pinker's assessment of the times in which we live brings one to the only conclusion one can profitably draw that such an excess of stupidity is not often to be found in nature. Couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, you have to come to the conclusion that these experts are either nefarious and know exactly what they're doing, or they're as deceived as their listeners. And how do they package their deception? They disguise it as hope. They disguise their theory as faith. And their expertise as progress. And for those that refuse to accept this new normal, well will have to take away certain privileges that you currently enjoy. For instance, you don't comply, well, you can't work. You don't comply, you can't attend school. We'll have to maybe charge you extra to attend school or maybe even have uh, money taken out of your paycheck. We won't be able to allow you to enter certain places of business, perhaps your place of worship, until you have no choice but to concede to the new way of doing things, the new order. This is what science, the state, and yes, even religion, calls progress. In a recent article in The Atlantic entitled, The Unvaccinated Need to Bear the Burden, this is what the author of this article says, Amid a global health crisis, people who defy public health guidance are not and do not deserve to be a protected class. I mean, that language is stark. Stark language. Now, I want to take a look at another article more in depth. And this article is taken from Earthbeat, written by uh, Thomas Rees who's a Catholic Jesuit priest. This article, I mean, when I read it, I, I was beside myself. But I'm going to read uh, major portions of it. And again, uh, as usual, you can go to today's uh, podcast episode, and uh, there you can, under the show notes, uh, I'll have uh, the link where you can read the whole article for yourself. Again, the article um, 
is written by Thomas Reese, and it's entitled COVID-19, Global Warming and Diminishing Catholic Guilt. Okay. Now, as you've really got to pay attention to this, I'm going to try to go through this quickly. So he starts by writing, COVID-19 and global warming are enough to make me long for the days of clerical power and Catholic guilt. In those good old days, he says good slash bad old days, at least he admits <laughs> that there were some bad days in there. But anyway, he says, in those good bad old days, the church's hierarchy was able to issue thunderous edicts, and most Catholics would follow its directions like sheep. If the lady did not, they would feel guilty and fear going to hell. Sounds like a great picture now, doesn't it? He goes on to say, The church used to have the power to make and break kings, the power to shape cultures and command people's actions. Too bad it does not have such power to save humanity from itself today. Yeah, you're listening right. This is what he longs for. He longs for those good old days of clerical power. Okay, continuing on. Reese writes, Would that the Pope could declare vaccine skeptics and climate change deniers heretics and put their books, articles, Facebook pages, and tweets on the index of forbidden books. I mean, why not just say, hey, uh, let's not just take away the books. Let's burn them, because that's what they used to do in those good old days. And why not either imprison them or, hey, burn them at the stake? I mean, that, again, is part of those good old days, right? So, I mean, come on, let's take it to the logical. Let's, let's go all the way. Moving on, he writes, This would be quite a change from the days when Galileo and Darwin were considered heretics. This time, clerical power would be backing up science. Nothing would give me more illicit pleasure than having the governors of Florida and Texas, along with the leaders of the oil and coal industries, excommunicated just as kings and nobles were excommunicated in the past. And rather than organizing crusades against Muslims, as it did in the past, the church could mobilize its people to protect the health of the earth and humanity. But today, the children's crusade is led not by the church, but by Greta Thunberg. Oh, yes, good old Greta, St. Greta. Hopefully, she will be more successful than the Children's Crusade of 1212, which ended in disaster. Yeah, well, at least he admits that. Reese writes, There was a time when Christianity had the ability to do great things. We marvel at those Christians in the past who dug the, the foundations of great cathedrals the completion of which they and their children would never see. The idea of taking on a project like building a cathedral that might take centuries to complete is incomprehensible to us. All right, I'm going to skip on where he says towards the end here, Pope Francis in his 2015 encyclical Laudato Si called the world to individual and system and, and systemic conversion to prevent the disaster that is quickly approaching. There are some who have responded, such as the Laudato Si movement, formerly known as the Global Catholic Climate Movement. But millions of us are going about our business worrying about our daily lives, while Catholic bishops and elites, myself included, argue about the Latin Mass, communion for politicians, rather than the coming climate apocalypse. Francis is right. We need both individual and systemic conversion. Our lifestyles must change, and our, car our carbon-based economic system must change. We must turn the thermostat up in the summer and down in the winter. We must recycle and use less energy. But we also need government regulations and a carbon tax so that the entire economic system becomes less carbon-dependent. This will not be easy, but it must be done, he says. The church has lost its clerical power, so I guess we will have to depend on Catholic guilt. But this time, the hell we face will be of our own making. Striking article. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm at a loss for words. The longing for a time when the authority of the church 
which was totalitarian, which mercilessly, which mercilessly tortured, burned, beheaded, ripped out people's insides publicly while the victim was still alive and, 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 and then persecuted heretics. This is seriously what this churchman longs for. And you can be sure that he's verbalizing the very sentiments of like-minded politicians, leaders, scientists, activists, and the Pope himself. As an active leader of the church, shouldn't he be more focused on the hope of the promise of a new earth? I mean, that is what Christianity teaches, right? Where war, famine, COVID, all the natural calamities that we're seeing now take place, all the loss and death no longer exist? No. (laughs) See, no, there's no mention at all of this promise and this hope, which is given by... Jesus. No, he rather longs for the authoritarian rule of one of the most anti-Jesus, anti-hope, anti-liberty power the world has ever seen. Rather than focus on offering the incredible salvation from this earth, he seeks to save the earth at the expense of your and my liberty. I mean, after all, he's an expert in church rule. And he points to the experts of science. And that's the best he has to offer. A totalitarian state joined with a totalitarian church. How does that sound to you? What is the salvation that we're all looking for? It's one, is it one that repairs the rift between race, stops all the wars, ends pollution, brings about world peace, but that doesn't end strife or end aging or end forced compliance? What about depression, despondence, loss, and death. What kind of a hopeful future is that? And what is it that we ultimately put our faith in? You know, over the last couple of years, there's been a, a crowdfunded TV series that has been making giant ripples in the streaming age of entertainment. It's not produced by Netflix. Or Amazon Prime, uh, some of the bigger studios like Paramount or Warner Brothers. And again, these are all big names that we've come to know when it comes to good quality movie making. But nope, none of these have anything to do with this series. It's 100% sustained and funded by people like you and like me. And if you haven't already guessed what show I'm talking about, it's called The Chosen. As of today, the show has been viewed by well over 250 million worldwide and counting. In fact, they just finished releasing the second season and they have five more seasons planned for release. This new series follows the life of Jesus and the course of his story that most of us probably are familiar with. Right? Or perhaps we know a lot about it or know very little about it. But, you know, here's the thing. This show is capturing the attention of faith-based believers and non-believers alike. It's changing hearts and minds. And yeah, it has its critics. But what show, what, what entertainer or movie doesn't have their critics? In fact... For me, critics are just an opportunity for free advertising. Bring it on. But it isn't just another religious series. 
That's the thing. It isn't about religion. It's about down in the trenches, raw truth. You think totalitarian? You think that totalitarianism is a product of postmodern thinking? Think again. No, see, totalitarianism is a problem of the human condition. And look, what's the point of someone like Jesus? Is it about saving the earth as we have it now without dealing with the problem of what lies inside of each one of us? We're not just some number in a cosmic mathematical equation. Each of us matters. You matter. And I matter. And that's just not, it's just not a cliche. It's the truth. Why are so many watching this series and why now? You, you know, you'd think, oh, another cheesy religious series that, you know, maybe some church people will watch and they go, oh, how cute. But no, this is transcending just church people. And it's not, uh, it, it, it isn't good just because of the characters and, 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 and the plot and the cinematography, the story writing. They're all absolutely exceptional. It's, it, it, it's simpler than that. People are watching because the emptiness that plagues all of us, the distress that we now see and feel, and the imminent collapse of this world shows us that the experts, political, scientific, and yeah, even the religious experts, don't hold the answer to anything it only offers us more of the same grim reality that is constant throughout history. Who can we go to that can heal us of all of it? Who can feel that emptiness that is itself a pandemic of all mankind? Who has promised that as he once came, he will come again to end it all to only give us another beginning. One without all the horrors and fears and the, and the despair that we're living in right now. He's the one filling the souls of so many who are watching this series. And this is why The Chosen is breaking trends. It offers real-life truth. Real-life answers, real-life hope, it offers real-life faith. And what's more, it shows the condition of the world as it was back then. And what you realize, it's, it's no different to now. I mean, the biggest difference to, to our times and theirs I mean, let me simplify it. Our shiny smart devices, better internet maybe. But the issues were one and the same. Authoritarian government, oppressive religions, power struggles, getting rich quick schemes, poverty, sickness and death. Science claims that it has made life better for us. I and mean, look, Perhaps, maybe in some ways, sure. In terms of practicality and convenience, okay. But what about the soul? What about the deepest part of ourselves? Now, I want you to take the story of a woman. She lived in the red light district of the time. She lived from sexual partner to sexual partner, unloved, and an outcast of society. She suffered from demon possession. She had lost her family. She lost her innocence. She, she, she had no home. She was a wanderer. In the very first episode of The Chosen, this is the character that we're introduced to. In fact, you know, in, in, in most movies, if you've seen past movies made about Jesus. 
you get a little bit of history and then you come to you come to Jesus all the miracles everything that we know about what happened to him and then boom done the end and i'm not saying that past movies haven't been made artistically um at a high level they have there's some really nice um interpretations of the story of of Jesus done in the past by hollywood and 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 filmmakers But in the, this very first episode, we're not introduced to him. We're introduced to this woman. She's the main character of this story right here, right now. All she had was her memories of a father who had taught her that she had worth and was valued because she was created. And because she was created, she was actually loved. And the words her father passed on to her are of a creator who's real, who sees her, not for what the rest of the world sees, but who sees her for who she really is, her true self. And these are the words that her father repeats to her when she's a little girl in his arms. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, don't be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What was there to live for anymore? Her lowest points were what religion said made her someone that normal people couldn't be around In fact, shouldn't be around. There was no coming back for people like her. And what about the other side? What about the side that the 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 side of life that she was on? All of the men who saw her as just a passing pleasure, not an actual person. What was left for her? At her lowest point, when the rest of the world had already defined her and her destiny. This is when the words of her father would always speak to her and come back to her. But not just as words that were abstract, but as an actual, living, real fulfillment. And one man actually calls her by her name. Mary. He interrupts her path. But it's not what she expects or is accustomed to. He sees her. He knows her. He understands her. And though what he sees is a life of choices that have taken her into this dark path into hopelessness it doesn't matter because he's not there to be her judge this Jesus who so many look at as some product of religion or dogma doesn't do what everyone else does he comes to her embraces what others say isn't worthy of embracing and says I have called you by name I have redeemed you. You are mine. What most would call a lost cause and a damaged soul beyond repair, Jesus makes into an opportunity for healing, for acceptance, and for actual real-life redemption. Something we don't see in our world today. Something which the world isn't calling for. Those who see themselves as the would-be saviors of the world. No, it's not redemption. I mean, you heard the article I read in the last segment. The churchman was calling for times of the past when you could force people into compliance. But no, not this man. It's real redemption. And the promise is literal. New life and new beginnings. 
not just some temporary fix. Can science offer you that? And can any politician offer that? Can any theory offer that? What is it that makes Jesus such a hard case to swallow for so many, especially in the middle of such a deteriorating world? The issue is not out there. It's in here. It's in the very core of who you are, of who I am. It's about the condition of our souls, what we believe, and where we ultimately put our faith. And after watching The Chosen, it has shown to be an accurate depiction of not just the condition of planet Earth, but of the solution each of us is crying out for. And watching, watching this series costs you nothing. <laughs> In fact, it costs you nothing, literally. This is what's awesome about, about this series. It's actually free. You don't have to pay to watch. There's no subscription and, and no contract that you have to sign. This is what makes this show in our time so unique. In fact, all you do is you download the, the actual app. The Chosen has its own app. You download it to your phone, to your, to your device, and you have immediate access to both seasons that are available to watch. You can binge on your own time. You know, there's a lot of binging, I'm sure, every one of you have been doing the last year. COVID has sort of the age of, of binging. If you weren't binging before, COVID opened up the door to, and defined binging. And I'll tell you, after watching this series once, you want to watch it over and over and over and over again. Dallas Jenkins, the director of this series, and his production team have accomplished something, I'll tell you, special. Something incredibly special. And especially at a time when the world is in such trouble and despair. It means so much to so many. And in the app, there's a pay it forward option. And it gives you the choice to, uh, to pay for an entire season or both seasons. And what it does with the, crowdfund with the crowdfunding method is it allows others who can't pay or choose not to pay to come and see for themselves. It ends up paying for itself, literally. And look, I, I, look, I know that right now what this sounds like is an ad. And yeah, look, there's no, there's no reservations here. I'm, I'm plugging it. But it's because after everything else the world is so focused on and fighting about and overwhelmed by. I mean, here's a story that isn't just any like any other story or show that you've watched. I mean, who isn't tired of the same old thing? The same old back and forth in the media, the governments, social media platforms. The thing is, Jesus actually spends time addressing the very things we're seeing unfold before us now. And he doesn't tell us, uh, he, he, he doesn't just tell us about them. He tells us that when we see these things happening, the next thing we can expect is our salvation. Who doesn't want that? Look for the link to the Chosen app on today's show. It's going to be there. And all you have to do is click. And once you click, it's in your hands. All you got to do is come and see. That's it. Come and see. And you lose nothing. Just come and see for yourself. Because I'm done with all of this. What about you? The historian Philip Schaff has this to say about the character of Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning. He shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, 
he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned vocabulary, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. You can add the chosen to that list. It's worth everything. Believe me. Come and see. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.